Another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July 23rd, 2013. It's a Tuesday, and this is episode 1170 of the Survival Podcast today. I've got an interesting one for you today. It's on permaculture, but it's on business. And I think even if you have no interest whatsoever in permaculture, if you have any interest in business... Um, this is going to be a great podcast for you. And I think if you have no interest in business, but you have an interest in pi- uh, uh, permaculture, I think this is going to be a great podcast for you. Now, if you don't care about business at all, you have no intention of ever ha- uh, having you know direct control of your financial life, uh, and you don't care about eating food and being uh, able to produce your own food, then this might not be a great episode for you, but... I think for the majority of people, it'll be great. So uh, before I uh, get into today's topic and bring our special guest on, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today, the awesome, the kick-ass, the badass Chef Keith Snow. I just met Keith up in Montana, and he's every bit the guy I thought he was after all these years of communicating by Skype and phone and uh, email and text and stuff like that. He's just awesome. And you know what else is awesome? His seasoning mixes, man. His seasoning mixes are kick-ass. I just did, uh, for uh, for some folks that came over, some baby back ribs with Chef Keith's Low and Slow Barbecue. And the response was, what was on those? What is that? How'd you do that? Uh, and all I did was uh, rub them down with a little apple cider vinegar, coated them with Low and Slow, cooked them Low and Slow on a gas grill with a little packet of uh, pecan chips there because I don't have a new sidebox smoker yet after we gave our last one away. And uh, they were pretty amazing. Fall off the bone, smack your mama good, amazing. And everything that you will learn from Keith, from his podcast and how to cook, and from his stuff that he offers on his website is just as awesome. Check him out today at HarvestEating.com. Next up, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? It's shocking. It's amazing. I know, but you'll get Berkey water filtration systems from the Berkey Guy. But why go to Jeff? I mean, you can get Berkeys from lots of people. Why, why the Berkey Guy? Are you going to be the guy that got your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy when you could have got it from the Berkey guy? I mean, really? Is that going to be you? You have an opportunity to deal with the Berkey guy, and you're going to buy it from, like, the gun show guy? Deal with the Berkey guy in all seriousness, because I'll tell you what. Jeff is one of the largest resellers for Berkey in the world, and that means he has a direct line into the main company. If anything goes wrong, he can get it fixed for you. He's a maniac with customer service. Such a maniac, I won't put him on a discussion panel again. You know why? I This is a true story. I had him in North Carolina on a discussion panel. People were asking him questions, and he was on his iPad handling customer service in the middle of the discussion panel. Now, that means I'm not going to put him on discussion panels, but will I recommend him uh, as someone to buy from? You bet I will. Check him out today. His website is directive21.com, and that is directive followed by the numbers 2 and 1. So it's the actual numbers, directive21. 21.com. And remember, Jeff doesn't just have great stuff from Berkey. He has a lot of other great stuff like Mountain House Foods and other great stuff for your prepping. Check them out today. Directive21.com. Also want to remind you guys about walkingtofreedom.com. That forum is really ticking up over there. 
I uh, got a few moderators that came in and when I asked for them before, if you'd like to moderate a state board, let me know. If you would like to moderate the whole board as a global moderator, let me know. Uh, please don't say, I can do this or that or this or that. Guys, I'm really tired. I really am this week. Uh, after all the travel last week, all the stuff I'm doing to catch up, if I get an email from someone and it says, well, I could do this or I could do that or I could do this, I don't mean to be a jerk, but it gets deleted. It really does. I, I, I don't want this or that. I want to be the moderator for the Tennessee board. My forum name is. If it doesn't say something like that, I'm probably not going to reach out to you and figure out what you want to do. Because I need moderators that are just going to do things. And if you send me an email that was like, I can do this or that, and you're feeling upset with me right now, don't. Just email me back and tell me what you want. And I will take care of it. And if I got an email like that today, I probably would respond and say, hey, look, what do you, what do you really want to do? But the days that I was getting them, I'm like, man, I'm, I'm just completely tired and beat here, man. I, so a few of those types of emails got ignored. Uh, my email, for those who want to get in touch with me for anything, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. It's my real email. All my email ends up in the same place, except for certain filtering things I do. When you send me stuff that's like, uh, for a show, like for a Monday call in, or a Monday feedback show, write, you know, article for Jack, question for Jack, et cetera on it, uh, that'll get a different type of screen. But pretty much any email you want to send me, go ahead and just send it. Please do me this favor though. Seriously guys, I mean, I'm, again, I know sometimes I say this, you might think, this guy's so arrogant. What a jerk. Telling me how to send him an email. I'm really not. Look guys, I mean, talking hundreds of emails a day. If I spent two minutes on every legitimate email, non-spam email I got, a, I get a day, I'd spend 10 hours a day in front of the computer. I can't do that. So I have to spend less than two minutes average per email. That means some emails are just going to get ignored. It just has to be. There's just no way around it. Um, you know, so it gets it gets immediately sorted. Is this is this like customer service? Well, that's got to be high priority. Is this easy to answer? That's high priority. Does it go into the queue to see if it gets on a show? That goes over here. The way you do this is make your point, ask your question in one to two sentences immediately. Don't say, "Let me tell you about my life," and then get to your question somewhere in the middle. It's not that I don't care. It's that I cannot physically do what you're expecting when you write me an email like that. Um, if you write me an email with more than two paragraphs in it, I probably am not going to read the whole thing unless there's some real compelling reason to do so. I'm being completely honest here. I'm not being a jerk. I'm trying to help you get a response from me, and that's the best way to do it. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members. You'll help support the show at a whopping grand total of 18.3 cents an episode, or 50 bucks a year. Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, Active Duty, and Prior Service, you guys get a discount. You just email me with service, discount, and the subject line. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did if you're prior service. So if you were a, a in the Army 10 years ago, you still qualify for this discount. I don't care if you were in for two years. If you were in the Peace Corps in 1978 and you were sent to Guatemala, you still qualify for this discount. And the discount is also extended to first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. I don't need a CV. I don't need a book. One to two sentences, who you are and what you're doing, who you are and what you did. And if you uh, want the discount, please email me with service discount in the subject line with that information before, not after you join the Member Support Brigade. For more information on the Member Support Brigade, go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. And with that wrapped up, I'm ready to get into our main topic today, how you can build a profitable permaculture business and compete with conventional landscape companies, which is a multi-million, probably billion-dollar-a-year industry. 
Uh, a guy that was very successful on the other side of it and now has gotten the permaculture bug, Mr. Phil Williams, is here to talk to us about that. And Phil, with that, hey man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. I appreciate you having me. Hey, we've got you on to talk about creating a profitable business, installing and ma- maintaining permaculture gardens. I think that's so cool because it's in many ways exactly what I'm going to be discussing at the Permaculture Voices Conference in 2014, taking permaculture to the mainstream. And this is one avenue that I see as a real way to do that, to take permaculture to people that may not even know what the word means and might not care. They just want a really cool backyard with lots of good stuff to eat in it. Um, but before we dig into the meat of that, can you just kind of tell us about your background and how you got from wherever you were to here? Uh, well, it's it's a pretty windy road. Like you know, most most people that are, are in permaculture have come into contact with. You know, we've sort of gone here and there and, and ended up where, where we are. But uh, um, I was I was actually an army brat, so I've kind of lived all over. And um, you know, uh, we actually did a couple tours in Panama, so I, I always like hearing your your Panama stories, but uh, anyways, um, so I, I kind of got a, a, a glimpse of uh, a little bit more of the world than I think, you know, most Americans are, are, are able to do, and, uh, um, you know, it got me interested in, in different things as far as uh, how people are how people are living and, and seeing, you know, real poverty, and uh, anyway, so, uh, you know, we went up, my dad's last tour was uh, at the Pentagon, so we ended up in Northern Virginia. And uh, when I was in my last year of college, I was having, you know, some money issues, and I started, you know, cutting people's grass for, for a living, basically. And uh, after I got out with my worthless uh, liberal arts degree, you know, like like the kids today, uh, I had a tough time finding a job. So so basically, I just kept cutting grass, and then I started adding services, you know, making all the mistakes, but eventually figuring it out. And, uh, you know, and then the business ended up, uh, you know, taking off. And, you know, I think we were probably riding, you know, a little bit riding the housing boom and then the, the government bubble down in the D.C. area. I think we were certainly riding that, too. But uh, outwardly, uh, you know, became very successful. You know, my wife and I, we were living in a 7,000-square-foot uh, house, you know, 25 minutes outside the city, pretty expensive area, making way too much money for somebody that's 30 years old, you know. Um, but uh, in the end, I mean, none of that, material success really brought, at least for me, never really brought any real happiness. And, um, you know, and I also, I really started to question the sustainability of what we were doing. You know, we're driving around, burning fuel to mow people's yards far too often. You know, we're spraying chemicals to make the grass green and perfectly monocropped. And we're planting trees and shrubs that really don't have any function other than to, you know, to sit there and look pretty. And, um, you know, so I really didn't feel very good about what I was doing. But at the time, I didn't know anything about permaculture. Um, so then in, in 2007, I started to see a lot of the cracks with the housing, with energy, with the economy. And um, at the time, my, my business partner and I, we had an opportunity to sell the business to a pretty large company from Florida. And I was looking, I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm ready to get out. And uh, But he, he wanted to kind of keep doing what he was doing. Um, he had a, He had a pretty you know, uh, lavish lifestyle, we'll put it that way. And I was ready to sort of downsize and, and you know, be more uh, be more interested in, in, you know, my quality of life versus the quantity of things I was obtaining. So anyway, so I ended up uh, selling out, and we actually had, believe it or not, we actually had two houses at the time, a rental and then our house. So we sold two houses, a business, my car, my motorcycle. We did all that in about six months. And 
in fact, my motorcycle actually sold the day the day the day we were moving. We, we rented a U-Haul, packed up our stuff in a U-Haul. We were living in an apartment at this time, and I ran out of room and drove my Ducati down to the Ducati dealership and sold it that day. And then we drove up here to uh, Central Pennsylvania, and you know we found, we ended up finding a you know a nice six-acre south-facing slope, uh, not too far from a small town that we like, and we ended up you know building a house. That, much more sustainable. It's an insulated concrete form house. It's producing more energy than it uses. And um, uh, and then I ended up uh, going to trade school. So I wanted to be I wanted to be a building analyst. And they have this trade school up in Williamsport um, where you can you know learn energy auditing and, and weatherization, all the building science. So I learned I did learn a lot there. And I had a weatherization, contracting, and energy auditing business for about three years. And Ultimately, I wasn't making much money, and um, it, uh, and most of the time I was, you know, upset that I had to be taken away from my garden to go do a, a consult or a job. So uh, eventually, I ended up selling my equipment, and you know, I was doing a lot of organic gardening at the time. And then I, I, I was exposed to permaculture, and I was like, you know, this is really what I want to do. And uh, so I started really focusing on permaculture. Took my PDC in in 2012. And actually, I'm taking the same one you are with with Jeff Lawton. Oh, okay. So, yeah, it's been fantastic, by the way. And I, and I took one in 2012, and I was like, you know what? I, I felt like I was learning more on my own, just with my own research, than, than they actually helped me. But, you know, uh, um, I was just in Montana for the Dave Jackie thing, and there's, you know, it's all permaculture people and fairly advanced folks. And I was asked, or, or, you know, one guy said, are you doing the Jeff Lawton thing? And I said, yeah. And he goes, why the hell are you doing that? Um, having been through two other PDCs. And I'm like, because it's more. <laughs> yeah, you know, and because it's Jeff, and I don't know about you. I mean, I think most of the people that have been taking it have been not just blown away by the instruction, but the amount of additional material that he's doing with answering questions is yeah. it could never happen in a permaculture class because you'd never get through it in a two week intensive. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's so, so detailed. I mean, there's so much stuff that just was never even covered. Um, anyway, I'm sorry. Go go ahead. I just. You know, when you said that, it just made me think, you know, a lot of people have asked that. Why would you bother since you've already – it's not just the certification, right? It's it's how, how much education can you pull in? Oh, absolutely. I could care less. I mean, I already have my PVC. I'm not interested in being certified, although it would be cool to have a certificate from Jeff Lawton. I'll, sure, I'll be sure to brag about that. But Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's I, I've really – I've, I've actually really found it interesting learning some of the different climate zones, and I felt like my other class didn't do a great job. Uh, teaching that, even though I don't, obviously I'm not doing any design work in the tropics, but I think it's cool how they, how they're, how the different climate zones, you know, they, they, they're almost opposite in a lot of ways, which is cool. Um, but, uh, anyways, I, uh, I ended up, um, deciding to do the whole, you know, I started doing the whole permaculture thing here, and then, um, basically I really started to think about, hey, how 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 could I find a way to really get permaculture more out there than it is now? And I was thinking about the, the thousands of clients that I used to, you know, have some sort of effect on either myself or through designers and estimators. I was like, you know, why isn't the landscape industry doing this? Why why do we not have permaculture? And I know they're out there, but they're very very few. And uh, so. So basically, what I am, uh, what I'm doing now is I have a website where I do sell a few things on the website, uh, you know, some seed and some stuff for for chickens and whatnot. But uh, I also like to do some some consulting where I'm I'm actually helping the traditional landscape companies learn to incorporate permaculture into their operations, and also the permaculture people. And I don't know how you feel about this, Jack, but 
and I'm going to probably piss off some permaculture people, but uh, it seems to me like a lot of permaculture people are more about skipping around in the garden looking at the flowers than actually getting out there and getting this stuff installed all over the place. Yeah, I think there's two problems. One, we have what's what I call a poverty consciousness in permaculture. This whole whole segment that wants everything to be free and nobody to make any money and it's all wrong. And if you have the greatest idea in the world, it should be profitable. And if it really does what it says we do, there should be room for all of us that want to do something profitable with it, whether it's education, installation, maintenance, or farming, to be profitable with it. And nobody should have a problem with that. And the segment that does within permaculture, I consider a complete and total boat anchor to the entire movement. So now I've pissed off people so far beyond what you're going to do, you don't have to worry anymore. But I'm sorry it is. We're dragging well, well, a I agree with that 100%. We are dragging a poverty consciousness boat anchor behind us. So people, I want to take a PDC for free. Okay, you can't scrape up a grand to take a PDC. What are you going to do with the knowledge? Right. Right? Okay, then the other side of it, I think that we have a problem is the political crap, right, about all of the ecological stuff. I don't care what side of it you're on. I, that is basically you see people go into business as a permaculture business, the ones that don't have that that first problem. But then everything they do is about carbon footprints and all this other stuff. So what you immediately do then you've got this very narrow niche market, right? Yeah. This extremely narrow market that's ready for this, and then you piss half of it off. They won't even talk to you, right? Yeah. So you just cut your niche market into a sub niche. For no, if you do that for a reason, right? Mm-hmm. You, you're thinking like permaculture, like occupying a specific space. Like the market's huge, so you have a massive market. So you might go into a sub niche of a sub niche in a massive market. Plumbing, mm-hmm. for instance, I can see somebody right. going. I only do commercial plumbing for schools, right? Because <laughs> there's so many schools and so much need for plumbing. But permaculture design and implementation, you need yeah. to be everybody's friend. And the thing killing us is the people that are so much the purest to whatever belief system they have that they don't want to talk to the person that says, well, I'll do my backyard, but I'm still driving my freaking truck, right? Right. I, that is just, you know, well, that's not good enough. Well, then starve. And yeah. I'm sorry to go on a tangent, but I just came back from an event where there was a group of people there fitting right into those two holes, and most of them are in one hole or in both. So, so not only... Are they poverty conscious, but they only want to talk to people like them? And the the whole point of permaculture is diversity, right? Right. We don't have diversity. We don't have a polyculture. We don't have a guild. And And I'm sorry. I'm going to let you go now. I just No, I was just going to say that uh, I I don't think that people in permaculture realize how very few people are even, even know the word or even understand it even remotely. Uh, for the most part, the mainstream has no idea um, that it even exists. And if you talk to a normal, I, I would say that of 100 people that ask me what I do and I try to explain permaculture, I would say maybe you might get one that says they know, but I can tell by the way they're shaking their head that they're just pretending like they know what I'm talking about and they have no idea what I'm talking about. So I think it has to be, I mean, if I were marketing it, I wouldn't even call, I don't know if I would even call it permaculture. I'd just start doing it because when you go to a, when you go to a consultation with a client, and you're the expert, you start talking about permaculture principles and, and all the different things you could do as far as, uh, you know, implementing some of these things, but you're going to blow people away. I mean, yeah. they, they don't care what it's called. They're like, wow, that sounds awesome. I want that in my yard. 
I mean, I think that, you know, the way Marjorie Waldcraft is marketing her DVD series, mm -hmm. which I'm going to take credit for because I, I came up with the tagline for it to yeah, help her out. Turn your backyard into a food production machine. Yeah. If you look at her, if you get her DVD and you watch it end to end, the whole thing's permaculture. Maybe not quite to the design science level that you or I would take it to, but it's all permaculture technique, and it's all applied on a zone analysis basis. This goes here, that goes here, minimizing your work. I think she did it without even knowing initially that she was doing it, just because it made sense. But the, the word permaculture is not on that DVD. But nope. permaculture people buy it, but non-permaculture people buy it too. And that's, that's called universal marketing. And when you're in a small market, you have to be that way. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I mean, I can see, I can see like a, a, a direct nail piece that's, that has maybe a picture, uh, with, with a little line down the middle that maybe shows one side and says them and has like some guy in a mop suit spraying the lawn or something. And then and maybe shows a, a permaculture garden with a, I don't know, a little kid picking an apple or something. But, uh, yeah. I think you'd have to, you have to really, uh, you know, a picture is going to is going to sell it. It's not going to be, oh, you know, this is what it is. It's going to have to be something that people can can just look at and say, oh, I want that. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think that, and I'm going to say this, and then we're going to get into the actual questions we had set up for this interview. Um, okay. One of the ideas I had while I was there, and I gave to several people that are in the design implementation business, is target churches because you don't deal with the crap you do with a with a public works job, but they have money and space. And mm -hmm. put together a trifold brochure, and right on the front it says, Feed Your Flock, Feed Your Community. Yeah. And, I mean, that's just – that's a home run, and you got to talk to a pastor. That's your that's your top-level guy as a pastor. Most accessible CEOs on the planet, folks, right? Yeah. Really, when you think about it, a pastor is the CEO of his church, right? right. And it's the most accessible CEO you'll ever speak to. Can I speak to the pastor? Yes, I'm right here. That's try try that with even a branch of a corporation on a corporate campus. I'd like to speak to the head of the you know whoever's the head of this division. Goodbye, go yeah. out. Right? Yeah, you you might get three people removed from it. <laughs> yeah, and, and it'll be the guy that is actually paid to make you go away. Yeah. You know. Anyway, just a thought. Anyway, I want to like with that in mind. Do you think a permaculture installation and maintenance company can outcompete a traditional landscape company? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, uh, I think, I think you could clean up. I think you could, I think you could literally, and it makes me so excited that it makes me want to go back into business. And I know how hard it is. And I, and I don't know if I have the energy to redo it again, but it, 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 I think it's such a good idea that people could literally run the old landscape model out of town, I think. And the name of the game for the local, if you're gonna have a local landscape company, they're all all your landscape companies are pretty much local, except for the big guys, you know, the Brickmans. We're not gonna be those guys anyways. But um, the name of the game is really reputation and your client retention. So if you're, so if you think about it, logically, if you're able to offer a service that surpasses the traditional landscape practices and that it's gonna be safer and and healthier, a lot more interesting, and uh, you know, in some instances, depending on how you set it up, less maintenance. And then you're also maybe providing some food production in a, you know, in a nice package that's going to be more productive over time. And you're, so you're going to end up with, you know, all these really happy clients. And then what ends up happening, especially in these suburban communities, because it's all about keeping up with the Joneses and then somebody gets a permaculture garden and it's awesome. And then everybody else has crappy monocrop lawns with, you know, plant mulch, plant mulch everywhere that, 
you know, have no function whatsoever, and then everybody's going to be jealous, and they're going to call, they're going to call their local landscaper and ask them to do permaculture, and the and the, and the local landscape guys going to have no idea what they're talking about, and no. so eventually they're going to they're going to get to their neighbor, and they're going to get to you, and then you're going to be installing these these jobs all over the place, and you're going to have a jump on everybody. And uh, the other big thing, if you think about it, these three, I, I can't tell you the number of jobs we redid. Where, where we came in after a landscaper, you know, five years later, the client hates the design. We came in and redid, redid the job. So, I mean, every 10 to 15 years, these, these uh, communities are turning over their landscape jobs. And a permaculture system, I mean, they, you know, I mean, they literally last a lifetime or, or way beyond that. Um, so, yeah, I think, you could, I think you could really clean up. You actually think the current landscape industry, in your words, is dying a slow, sure death. <laughs> why, why do you feel that way? Uh, well, I think that, um, first of all, I think, uh, I think, I think fuel is, as it gets, you know, more and more expensive is an issue. I mean, all the, the fertilizers and the chemicals that we're using, they're all, you know, petroleum based. The, the, uh, the phosphates being mined out, and that's, you know, it's, it's not forever. Um, and, uh, and I think that with the economy the way it is and, 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 you know, and I think in the future people are going to have to get a little bit smarter and less wasteful. And that all ties back into the way you, the way you would do something in permaculture. I mean, the, the current landscape industry, I think, I think once people kind of, once people are more knowledgeable about what, what they're actually doing to their properties, you know, how they're destroying the soil with the, with the herbicides, how they're, you know, Constantly compacting the soil by over mowing and um, you know planting these these plants that have no business being in their particular climate just because they look pretty and they're from Japan or something. Um, eventually, I think people will eventually figure it out, but it's going to have to come from uh, companies that are making money, companies that are out there doing these things successfully and literally taking taking almost like taking it over from within. So I think that yeah, I think the landscape industry is. Is dying a slow death. They, I, a lot of the guys just don't know it yet, but I could see it. Um, you know, in fact, our biggest year was 2006, and I told my business partner at the time, I said, "We're never going to see these kind of numbers again." And in 2007, we were slightly more, but it was yeah. the only reason was is because we did an enormous job in 2006 that we got paid for in early 2007. So ah, carryover revenue. Exactly, you, uh-huh. it, and it was a big job. It was a quarter of a million dollar job that uh, it was unbelievable. But uh, I told him, I said, w- "You take that job out, and we're down for the first time ever." You know, every single year we were growing, and then from then on out, it was it was downhill. But uh, you know, they're still hanging in. But I think it's a slow death for sure. Uh, let me add to that. Here's another thing. I think that uh, people are going to think I'm crazy when I say this, but I think part of what's going to kill the landscape industry and it'll become really popular in the next five to ten years is fake grass. Um, there's more and more of it coming out. It looks better and better. And let's face it, 90% of the job of a landscape business in the maintenance phase today is to keep the grass looking green and a certain length. Mm-hmm. And if you have a synthetic product that you can stick in that weeds can't get through, that basically you have to brush a couple times a year, um, and then all you're doing is maintaining a few trees and things like that, why? And yeah. as they get better with that product, and some of what I've seen lately, the only way you know it's synthetic is because it looks so much better than everything around it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if somebody just wants a freaking green lawn like that, there's no reason to grow grass. It just isn't. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, uh, I'm not super familiar with the synthetic longs. We, we did, we did, uh, we did have a few clients that had putting greens. So yeah. it was like kind of like a little section of their lawn of the petting green. But I mean, that, I could see the landscape guys starting to install those things. That wouldn't surprise me. I mean, we're already doing the most unnatural things we can come up with. It wouldn't surprise me if we start having, they start installing plastic plants and, and plastic, plastic lawns too. I mean, why not go, why not go all the way if we're going to, if we're going to destroy the environment? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and I, I'm not saying I'm advocating it. I'm just saying I think it's oh, a yeah, natural. Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. It's, it's a natural progression of, of the product, right? So you can have this grass, you have to water, you have to fertilize it. And honest to God, it's better for the environment. I know it doesn't seem like it because it's plastic, but I'm not I'm not using water I don't need. Um, I'm not using chemical fertilizers, and I'm not using herbicides. That's so, true. And yet the soil can still sort of breathe. It's not like paving it over, and the water can still permeate into the ground. Right. So it, in every way measurable, even though it completely sucks, <laughs> it's better than a Bermuda grass lawn or a St. Augustine yeah. grass lawn. It absolutely is. I can't believe I'm saying that, but it's it's true. That, that's a you know I had never really thought about it that way, and it, it, that actually does make a lot of sense. I mean, which which tells you how terrible lawns are. To, if the fact that a plastic one would actually be uh, better. slightly better for the environment. for the environment, even if you um, count the energy to produce it. Because the energy yeah. to maintain a lawn for five years is gonna—I—I I haven't done math. I don't know—I don't know exactly where, but I guarantee you, you're gonna cross that bridge before five years. Right. You just are. So, you—you <laughs> you were in a conventional landscaping business, and I think for people that are gonna go with the permaculture route, but go into that design, implementation, maintenance mode, it really still is a landscaping business model. So Absolutely. even if you switch over to landscape or over to permaculture, there has to be things you learned as a business professional about why those businesses fail. And I would think it would transfer over to not screwing up your new permaculture business. So could you speak on that for a bit? Yeah, yeah. There's uh, there's a lot of stuff that I think would, would certainly translate. And I think uh, I think it would be very easy for a traditional landscape to, to start incorporating permaculture without you know, totally blowing up their business model if they've been successful. And then you could, e I think you could easily make that transition. But one, uh, some of the reasons why I saw, and I had a lot of, uh, I knew a lot of landscape owners down there and obviously my own business, but um, some of the, there, there, I think there are three major reasons that I used to see landscape businesses fail and or uh, be unsuccessful. And one of the big ones is pricing that um, is too low for design build work. And, um, there's always this, and I always see this, there's always this desire for guys to get every job. And, um, and especially this desire to get these enormous projects. And, uh, you know, so, so guys will go in there and they did these jobs and the, and the only reason they get them is because they're, they're too cheap. And mm -hmm. then, you know, halfway through the job, they lose, they, they realize that they're, you know, losing their ass on the job. And, uh, the only thing they can do at that point is to start trying to cut corners and then the client gets pissed off because, you know, the client doesn't care if you're losing money on the job. The client said, thinks that you're not an idiot, that you know how to build, did a job yeah. and, uh, you know, <laughs> and that you're going to make money on it. So you, you start cutting corners, they're mad, and then your reputation goes, you know, goes to hell. And, uh, and then all of a sudden you're not, you're not making money, your reputation's terrible, and then, you know, you're, you're basically out of business before you know it. So that's one of the one of the big things I see. Um, in the maintenance realm, it's a little bit different um, because you, you kind of have to be a little bit more competitive with pricing because the name of the game in maintenance, in my opinion, is, is having a lot of volume 
in a small area. So if you got a lot of volume in a small area, you, you're probably going to do pretty well. Um, so you have to. The problem is, is, is in order to break into a, a certain area or a certain community, you can't be expensive in, 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 in calculating all your travel time because you don't have very many clients together. You know. Yeah. Um, so you sort of. So you sort of have to break in and kind of bite the bullet and, and make a little bit less than you'd like to make on the maintenance end. Um, to build up a, a you know a dense route, so you're not burning fuel going from from you know 15 minute apart houses. Um, you know we we had we actually had uh, blocks where we would literally have over 50 percent of a block. Um, I remember there was this one, uh, and we did a lot of townhouses, believe it or not. And there was this one community uh, called Kingstown, which we pretty much owned this whole community. And we'd go in, and literally you could park. We'd park our truck. And we'd have our mowing crew, one of our mowing crews, would, could literally walk around all day until lunch without moving that truck and then come back, load up, go have lunch, and then go to another section of the community and do it. And we were literally, I mean, you, I mean, we're charging, you know, 10, 15, 20 bucks a lawn, which, you know, somebody, uh, might think, uh, was, was cheap. But when you factor out the man hour rate, because everything was, the properties were small and they're close together, I mean, we're making, you know, 50, 55, $60 a man hour. So, I mean, it's, it, it's good money if you can get it close together. Um, so definitely got to get your pricing right. That's one of the big things. Uh, another big thing is, uh, you know, which is common to what you talk about on your show, is, is getting into too much debt for, for your trucks and equipment. So uh, I always see these guys that uh, they start their landscape company. The first thing they do is they go out and buy a brand-new dually S450 stake mm. with the 4x4 and the V-plow and um, you know, seventy thousand dollars later, they they're in business. Um, but uh, and I think that's a that's a that's a poor way to start out. I think you really have to kind of do the best you can to shoestring it for a while and and use the money that you bring in from your own hard work to try to pay cash for your your equipment and your trucks. And believe it or you, believe it or not, you're going to really appreciate that new piece of equipment when you've worked hard for it versus trying to get it on credit. Um, you know, when I, when I started out, my actually, actually my dad, he gave me his old Ford Ranger, which had been in three accidents, um, which, and uh, we, we, there was a huge dent on the side, which we did some home body work to pull it out, and it looked it looked it looked like somebody shot it, you know, with a, with a machine gun or something. And uh, anyway, so you know, I this was the first truck that I had, and I you know I had some borrowed equipment, and you know, any revenue that I got, I, I started upgrading my my equipment. I was just paying cash for the stuff. And uh, I think that's a, a huge deal. And, and the other reason I think that, that these new, not just new landscape businesses, but landscape businesses fa- fail in general is, is people start to get burnt out. It's, uh, I think it's, it's really difficult to go from that one, because you start out as your one-man band. You're doing everything. You're taking the phone calls. You're doing the estimating. You're doing the work. You're doing the billing. Uh, you're trying to manage all this. And you realize that you're working 80 hours a week and you're you're really not making very much money when you mm-hmm. really look at it. I mean, I remember I actually calculated how much money I was making in the beginning and it was like, I don't know, 4 or $5 an hour after it was all said and done, you know? And it, it can be kind of depressing, but uh, you got to realize that you're building something and you really have to put in an extraordinary amount of work to kind of get over that first hump of going from being all by yourself to being able to maybe hire in a receptionist and then being able to hire in a foreman and a, and, a, and a couple laborers and being able to eventually, you know, move on to being able to hire your own estimators and designers. And, um, and I, I think ultimately that's probably where you want to be. I think the, the one-man band of going out and doing all your own, 
doing everything yourself, I think that that model is 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 hard not to get burnt out. If you get injured, you know you're done. Um, so I think that uh, I think in the beginning, if you put a, if you really really sell out, then it's possible to get over that hump. But it is difficult. Yeah. Well, I think if that's true of most businesses. Um, what do the, the companies that really make it and become established have in common? Uh, I, I think systems is a big thing, Jack. I mean, it's uh, and, and and having the right systems and setting that up in the beginning is is, is will save you a lot of headaches down the road. And and I, I of course, I, for whatever reason, I like to make all the mistakes first and then figure it out. But uh, um, if you're smart, you'll you'll kind of figure out the systems ahead of time. But uh, some of the things that we did that really helped us system-wise is I, I developed a, a customer service tree, for example. So every phone call, and we had four or five people answering phones in the office. And so every phone call that came in, you don't want to have a situation where somebody calls in, the client calls in, and then, and then the person on the phone is like, well, so-and-so is not here right now, and they're out in the field, so maybe they can call you back later if they feel like it. You know what I mean? So... Yeah. It's uh, if you have a, we had a system to where it was like, okay, if somebody calls in and says this, then you have to do this. It's like, okay, your lawn's down, so so and so is gonna, we're gonna put it on their schedule, and tomorrow they're gonna come out and look at it, and they're gonna have your phone call, and they're gonna call you, and this is what we can do. So, so they're done. I mean, the, the next, the next phase of what needs to happen's already been set into motion, and that happened right at the point of contact of where the phone call came in. So that solved all the problems. And it also solved the problem, which I see a lot of companies do that are unsuccessful, is they, is they don't keep track of those callbacks. And, they, and if you really want to piss off your clients, hmm. uh, have them call you for something, and then you tell them you're going to do it to fix it, and then you forget about it, and then they have to call you a week later. I mean, that's a good way to really piss people off. Eventually, they just don't call you anymore. Um, so that, I think that's really getting the uh, getting the, 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 the office stuff square away as, as far as routing phone calls, getting the the estimates scheduled properly and having that done in a, an efficient manner is pretty important, especially when you have, I mean, we had, you know, we have hundreds of phone calls every day. I mean, it was, it was crazy. But uh, another thing we did was uh, we had a routing and, and billing software. And I think this is an absolute must have, even if you're just a one man band, you, you have to do it. When I, um, when I first started, I used a uh, Microsoft Outlook to just schedule the regular services and QuickBooks to bill it. I mean, it was it was an absolute nightmare. I mean, I, I had like, you know, 30, 40 clients, and it took me all day, once a month, you know, eight-hour day of just trying to put these bills out. And, uh, you know, and I, eventually I got, a, I got a program called CLIP, which is spelled C-L-I-P. And, mm-hmm. uh, and they, um, and with this software, basically, once a month, I mean, you're basically pushing a button and the routes are printed out, you know, and pre-printed stuff with self-addressed envelopes and, you know, the whole deal. Window envelopes, really easy. And even our route sheets would come out. You print the route sheets out, you set it up properly, they'll come out in the right order of your routing sequence. So, you know, whatever your, so your mowing day, the house is already in order. So you don't, you know, you just go from house to house. You know, and it has like 30, 40 houses and they're all in perfect, you know, geographic order for, for how they work. So I think you, you definitely have to do something like that um, as far as getting some sort of a, a software to make it make it easier on yourself. And um, another big thing for us was, was 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 how we paid our guys. We didn't pay anybody by the hour. Um, our our mm. foreman paid a, a you know a production. You know we we, did, we actually did a percentage of the job. So basically, the more jobs they can do, the more money that they made. So what ended up happening was all the guys that were lazy didn't like that and they quit. 
and all the guys that were industrious and hardworking was like, wow, this is awesome. I'm making tons Wait, of Which is stacking functions like permaculture because now I don't have to fire you? Yeah. <laughs> you just go away. Yeah, I mean, that's, exactly. That's exactly what you want. Right. <laughs> they can go work for your competitor. And, uh, In fact, you give them when they when they say I'm leaving, but can I get a reference letter? You're like, yeah, let me give you a great one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the other great thing about it is you don't have to be a jerk. You know, you don't have to follow around making sure you guys are working all the time. You know, I, I didn't. The foreman basically policed everything. I never had to be mean to anybody. Um, it's just like, hey, you want to make more money, get more work done. Um, and uh, you know, and it's it's really shocking how efficient people can be on a production-based system and how inefficient they can be on an hourly system. Um, it's really, I mean, <laughs> it really is interesting to, to see. And, uh, and, and the great thing was is I had, got, I had had foremen making over $50,000 a year, and, uh, and that was routine. I would say our average foreman was making about fifty grand a year. These are guys that um, a lot of those guys probably, I don't know, maybe had an eighth, ninth grade education, maybe. Um, you know, they're all smart guys, capable people, but as far as, um, you know, being able to, uh, go out and get a, a typical white collar job, that wasn't going to happen. You know, a lot of these guys were, were, you know, English was their second language. So, um, this gave, I mean, they, they worked for that money. So I had no problems paying that kind of money. And the way I looked at it, the more money they made, the more money I was making. So I'm like, great. You make as much as you want to make. I'm happy to pay you this. So anyways, um, so the, the other thing was, uh, that we did was we had a pretty sophisticated estimating system for your maintenance and your install stuff because and that's and that's really important. If your estimates are wrong, what'll end up happening is you'll end up getting all the jobs that you underbid. You'll end up not getting all the jobs that you that you overbid. And uh, so basically you end up with with you end up with all the unprofitable jobs and then the other jobs, you know, you don't get because you because you've overpriced them. And then people think that, oh, he's trying to gouge me. So you've got to be smart about making sure that your bids are, are where you need to be on your profit line. And, and, and the way to do that is have a have a, a good estimating system to do that. What, what do you think the biggest challenges in the, the landscape industry are today, be, beyond some of the stuff you're talking about, just as like industry-wide, what, what, are, what are the things that, that's challenging everybody? Uh, that, that's, that's a good question. I think um, – I think labor and seasonality are some of the are, are two of the big things that uh, are, are are tough to deal with. And I'm probably gonna piss off some more people um, by making a statement, but in general, in my experience, the the more Americanized, we'll call it, a worker, the worse <laughs> the worse he tended to work. And uh, um, I have a have kind of a funny story. My my first experience with hiring people was my second year. Now I was I'm a 22 year old kid, Jack, and uh, um, at the time, I really couldn't get anybody to work for me. So I'm running this business out of my mom's townhouse at the point at the at the time. You know, I've got um, I've got the garage, which was lucky that she actually had a garage. And uh, you know, at the time, I mean, it was what was it, 1998 or yeah, 98, and the economy is pretty good, especially in the DC area. So you're good luck finding somebody who wants to come out and you know cut grass for a living. And uh, anyway, so I actually called up Lorton Prison and. Uh, Said, hey, you know, you guys have some work release guys, and I don't even know where the heck I got this idea, but uh, they actually did. They sh- they sent me a couple guys. So every morning, the Department of Corrections van would show up, you know, bars on the window, and uh, you know, this is a pretty nice community, Jack. I mean, this is HOA townhouse community. Um, you know, townhouses running about three hundred grand, and uh, <laughs> so I've got the Department of Corrections 
uh, band coming every morning, and um, you know, and these two guys would, would would work with me. One guy's name was uh, Arvell, and the other guy's name was Victor. Both guys from D.C. I mean, they were you know nonviolent drug offenders. I mean, they, I mean, I, we we could we could go on a big tangent of whether or not they even deserve to be there, but sure. Uh, um, but I, I, you know, I, it's funny working with these guys because they, you know, they were good workers, but there were some different, you know, working with the guys that are in prison. I mean, it, you, you run into some, some issues that you wouldn't with, uh, with normal people. I mean, I had a conversation, I had to have a conversation with Arvell about, you know, not barking at women on the street at, at, from the truck as we drive by and stuff. You know, I mean, I'm 22 years old having this conversation with a four year old guy and, uh, you know, I, mean, I remember we had uh, one of our clients was uh, um, we were doing a job at one of our clients' house, and, and he actually had a little bit of a crush on this woman, which was kind of funny because she wasn't. I mean, she was a nice lady, but she wasn't. You know, she wasn't a swimsuit model by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, anyways, the dogs were barking, and, and she came out. She's like, "Oh, don't worry, the dogs dogs are friendly." And uh, anyway, so Arvell replies to her. He's like, uh, in the most suave voice I could ever, I, I could ever heard him saying, he's like, you know, how can a dog be afraid of a dog? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, he, uh, so that was like my first experience with, with having guys as, as employees. And, uh, um, so I, I, so it was good. I mean, they helped kind of get me through to the point where I actually was able to hire people not in prison, you know? Um, but, uh, but I kind of quickly found out that any of the, any English speaking guys were, were pretty terrible. So, you know, I was lucky if they even showed up for work, and then if they did, I was lucky if they were sober. I mean, we had a guy that had a serious coke problem. I mean, none of these "quote unquote" American type guys lasted real long. You know, they all complained. They wanted more money. They wanted to do less work. I mean, it was. I, I know I'm making some pretty terrible generalizations, but uh, that was, I uh, wish you weren't right. I said why. You know, I mean. I'm not saying nobody in America wants to work anymore, but it's a lot harder to find people that want to work with manual labor that are U.S. citizens than people would have you believe. They always say that's not true or that, you know, uh, immigrant labor drives down the wage. But I hired people to do very similar work when I was in the construction industry. And I'm telling you, and I hate to say it this way, but the worst workers I had were white guys. I mean, yeah. American or not, legal or not. I mean, it was, it wasn't a hundred percent, you know. And I'm, you know, but it's true. It's it was, and the harder the work, the more that was true. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, ultimately, we we ended up with a workforce entirely made up of uh, guys from Central and South America. Um, you know, the, the productivity productivity was was fantastic. I mean, work ethic and pride were there. I mean, the attitudes were good. I mean, I, I could literally go a year. I used to, early on, I used to schedule four days of work, and then I'd have an off day on Friday because I was always worried that, you know, if we got behind. And uh, the guys came to me and said, hey, we want you to schedule the whole week out. so we don't ever miss work. We're not worried about, you know, we're going to get the work done. He said, and if we don't get it done by Friday, we'll come on Saturday. And if we don't get it done by Saturday because we got two days of rain, we'll come on Sunday. And we'll work from, from dusk to dawn. We don't care. Um, so that was their attitude. Their attitude was like, you know, if you need you need us to work late, no problem. You need us to work on the weekends, no problem. It's 100 degrees out, no problem. And um, you know, I, I really have a lot of respect for those guys. And, and to be honest with you, some of the guys that work for me, I consider some of the best people I've ever met. But uh, um, so so I think that 
they if being able to you know tap into the, that the Central and South American workers is it, it, there's a lot of good things about it. I mean there there are some downsides that you have to kind of understand, which is you, they do expect to have a lot of work and they're going to be happy. They're not going to be happy if you've got short work weeks. So I mean mm. you can't you can't you, it's going to be hard to hire these guys as temporary guys unless unless they have a job during the week and you're given a weekend work or something like that. But uh, the other thing is, obviously, you got to get your immigration stuff straight. I mean, that's that's pretty scary. So you got to have your I-9 formed and making sure these guys are legal because you're going to run into a lot of uh, illegal guys that are going to want to work for you. Um, also, the language barrier is, is, is can be a problem if you have no familiarity. And it can be an issue with customers because there's customers that, like, I don't want people that, that don't look like me here. I mean, that's oh, another sad thing, but it's true. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, actually, we had that problem with, believe it or not, we had, we had one, uh, one black guy, uh, Tony, who was, who was, a, who was actually a, a really good worker. Um, and uh, we actually had a, a, a client call and say he didn't want him in his yard anymore. Huh. Um, and Tony, was, I mean, what, what's he going to do? He's not doing anything. He's just doing his job. Yeah. Um, so I actually, I, I told the client, you know, that he was done. We canceled him. Because uh, you know, I just didn't feel like that was right. But uh, um, but yeah, you, you do run into some of that, uh, some of the racism that goes with it. But uh, I think the positives still outweigh that. And you know, I mean, if somebody wants to be wants to be a you know total racist uh, piece of crap about it, then you, you don't you know you don't need that those clients. There's not there's not that many. I mean, that's clients. the big thing. You just don't need their business. And I I actually real you know my problem for me when I was doing construction work and having to deal with people like that is I the the person's property I was on wasn't the customer. Oh. You know, you're installing uh, cable systems and things like that, electrical lines, gas lines, and but what I would usually tell those people is, well, we're working for the county. So you call yeah, the, yeah. the county government and you tell them you don't want this man on your property because of the color of his skin. Here's my cell phone. Make the phone call right now. Yeah. And absolutely. that usually resulted in folded arms, a big harumph, and a, and a, and a 180, and back in the house they went, um, <laughs> yeah, which you. actually made me feel pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we, uh, we found that we actually translated. When, when we printed our route sheets out, they were translated in English and Spanish. So that way, um, you know, the, the guys could do all the work exactly. Um, and our foreman usually could speak some English. A lot of times the laborers, um, we, we actually used um, an H2B system, which is uh, where you get uh, seasonal guys up from Mexico. They come up and work for nine months or eight months, and then they go back home. So this is legal labor. I mean, you're not advocating illegal labor. You're advocating migrant labor that's coming into the legal system. Just Yeah, you, got, yeah, you have to... Yeah, you have to file the paperwork and, and do that. But it, it made sense for us because we didn't have a bunch of guys on unemployment. Um, yeah. And then, and then the local guys, which were mostly the foreman, the guys were making the big bucks, um, it was good for them because they went home when we ran out of work, and then we had more work for the guys, the guys that were remaining. Um, so that that really helps us with, with the other problem, which is the seasonality of the business because, you know, mm. that's something that you have to deal with. You got this. You know, that's something that the average American worker doesn't want either. And that's probably a bigger reason that you don't get quality American labor in that industry because the average American worker really will, to be fair, you find the right people, they will work hard, but they don't want to be told, I'm only going to need you eight or nine months a year. Oh, because that, that that is a you know, and with, I think a lot of ag jobs and other jobs like landscaping, I think that's a bigger reason than most people have probably ever acknowledged. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. So the whole seasonality is a 
it, you know, you get this huge influx of business in the spring, and then the slump, summer slows down, and then the fall picks back up, and then the winter is completely dead. So, um, so we actually did some, some, you know, obviously doing that, doing the temporary guys for most of our labor that helped. Um, but we also did stuff like, you know, leaf removal was big through the through the late fall and winter, and we actually put up Christmas lights, believe it or not, which I hated, but uh, it did help to fill some of the time. And, and then, of course, you did snow, so um, that helped to uh, keep things going. And then our guys, you know, we worked so hard during the year, and the guys made enough money, you know, to carry through for the for the whole season. So unless they were bad with their money, but uh, I can't control that. Yeah, that makes sense. So um, just looking at the industry of a whole, are, are most of the landscapers out there even aware of permaculture or edible foodscapes? Are they looking to do that work and they just don't know how to market it or there's not a market for it or are they just clueless? Uh, yeah, they. Um, I actually, about six months ago, I contacted a consultant that I, that I knew, a guy that used to come into our business once a year and go over our books and basically figure out, you know, what's, what's, what's happening behind, you know, behind all the numbers. And, uh, this guy is, was actually a nurseryman of the year and, um, he's been around, he's, been, he's probably been around the industry for 50 years. I mean, he had his own company, sold it, became consultant. So I, so I called, so I actually called him up. I had his n- number and, um, and I, I talked to him about permaculture and he had, he'd never heard the term before. He had no idea what I was talking about. And, uh, he was, he was actually completely uninterested. I mean, he, it was like I was, you know, I mean, if I was standing in front of him, it was like I had a horn grown out of my head or something. But, uh, um, so he was, so that gives you any indication. Um, obviously that's anecdotal, but that gives you some indication of, of, of the, the interest, you know, and I actually talked to, my old business partner is actually aware of permaculture because, you know, actually I've talked to him about it and I told him, I, I told him probably 10 times that he needs to, you know, to, to maybe do something in that realm. I actually sent him a copy of, um, Jeff Lawton's Urban Permaculture, you know, the DVD. Yeah. And, uh, um, six months later, you know, he still had my DVD and, <laughs> and, uh, and then I had somebody else who wanted to see it. So I finally called him and said, dude, just, you know, just send it back. You know, yeah. in the deal. But uh, that's kind of the that's kind of the atti- attitude is you know they're just they're really not interested for the most part. Yeah, and that's 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 sad on one level, but on the other level, that means that the entire market is wide open. And even though I said it's a niche, if you live in a city with a million people, a, a narrow niche of a million people is a, a shit ton of people. And I think there's tremendous opportunity there. You're absolutely right, Jack. It is wide open. Why do you think they don't even want to do it, though? I mean, I, I think there's some of them out there that if somebody said, I want to put in pecan, they wouldn't even do it in permaculture. Just, I want to put pecan trees here, some gooseberries and currants over there, and I want, you know, just kind of have their own idea. And they'd yeah. be, you know, I've, I've seen, and I've seen it in city parks, too, where you talk to them about, you know, you guys are putting in a bunch of these freaking, you know, live oaks, which are susceptible to different diseases, and do nothing, right? Yeah. Yes, they're a native species, but so is a pecan in Texas. Why don't you guys put pecans in there? And, and one of the things they tell me is we don't want to clean it up. <laughs> yeah, that's freaking food. Because... Only our nation's arrogant enough to call food garbage. But is there yeah. more than that? Yeah, it, well, yeah, yeah. There, there's, I think there's more to it than that. But, but it's funny you say that because it reminds me of uh, when I was talking to my old business partner. And this was actually recently. And I said, hey, you know, I said, you know, and we start, I start talking about edibles and, and whatnot. He's like, well, you know, you know clients they, they don't want the mess. They don't want to clean it up. And I was like, I was like, yeah, I know. It's just so horrible to have this beautiful organic produce on your own property just raining down on you. You know, 
Um, but uh, but I think the other issue is, um, for the most part, these these guys that have, have been you know been been successful in the traditional landscape industry. They've been doing this. They've been doing the same old things for decades. You know, they're they're very busy. They're you know, and I guarantee you, most of them think there's probably nothing out there they really need to learn about their business. They've done it all. They you know they've they're doing it, and to be honest with you, if I had if I had never left, um, I doubt I would have discovered permaculture. I'd still be probably doing the same old thing, and um, you know, and I don't think that these landscapers are really going to get interested in permaculture until you start having people calling them, asking them to do it, and um, and you know, and I think when that happens, you'll you'll probably what will probably happen initially is they'll probably say they never heard of it and, and click yeah. whatever, you know, another hippie call in my business. And then uh, I think if, you, if they hear it enough times, then they'll probably want to start learning a little bit about it. They'll probably go online and, and you know, and, and learn a little bit and, and try to do some half-assed version of what they think permaculture is. And then in the meantime, hopefully the real permaculture designers out there that are doing it the right way, they're going to be, hopefully already established. And, I, I think what uh, might also hit them kind of between the eyes, too, is when they were – because, you know, when you, you've talked to a customer and they're talking to a few other people and, and you, you just like – you know, if you put it down on a sales forecast, you'd call it a 90%. You you just had a good vibe. You know you're getting a job. And you, mm-hmm. you call the guy back up on a follow-up and he goes, we decided to go another way. Oh, and yeah. the guy goes, Why? Well, this other guy came in and he talked to me about this thing called permaculture. I don't really know what that is. But, like, he laid out this design where everything he was going to put in my yard was going to be edible and it was going to cut our food bill and it was going to cost a little more to install but a lot less to maintain and it was going to be less irrigation and all. So I decided to go with that. Yeah. And that's awesome. the way I, oh, that, that hits you in the bottom line, you know. And that's yeah. why I started out with that rant on, you know, the poverty consciousness and not making money. If you want to change all those yards out there, you got to change the people putting them in. Yeah. Not just the people that live in the houses with them on the outside. I mean, you got to realize that the the wealthier tier of this society, which has the greatest ability monetarily to affect change, in general has somebody else doing that work for them. So you got to change not just the homeowner. you got to change right. the worker. And if you don't, you can bitch all you want. You can drive your Prius and put it in neutral and coast down hills, <laughs> but you ain't going to change suburban America with that consciousness. You're, you're absolutely right, Jack. And and the interesting thing is, I mean, you have, people have to think about it logically. Where do you think these rich people are getting their ideas for this these monocrop lawns and and perfect landscapes? I mean, where do you think that comes from? It comes from the people that are installing them and telling them this is what looks good and this is the and this is what we this is what everybody does. Um, I, I, I think there's a, a market too for the guy that can go in and say, Mister Upper Middle Class Lexus driving American, I can make your front yard basically look like every other yard on your street with a few little things tucked in here, what they call in uh, forest garden a suburban landscape mimic, and then I can turn your backyard into this lush oasis. And yeah. I think that we that permaculturists also need to understand that that there is this need in society for now to fit in. So if I can only convert 20% of the front lawn, I'll do it. If I can convert zero, but I can get to the backyard, I'll do it. And I think that that needs to be unlocked in the mind, again, of the person that's like all or nothing. Oh, absolutely. You can't do all or nothing. And you're, you're very rarely you're going to come into contact with a client that's just going to say, oh, do, you know, you just do everything and we're just going to be right on board. I mean, you have, there's so many other factors you have to weigh in, HOAs and um, okay. you know, neighbors, and I mean, there's all you, you have to learn how to navigate that stuff. But I think there's a lot of cool things that could be done, you know, um, without uh, tripping some of those uh, wires, 
so to speak. Yeah, on that note, I mean, what what type of communities generally do you get that will pay for this type of service? Uh, which ones won't? I mean, the HOA stands out as being pretty resistant. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hate to say this, but you, you really kind of have to go where the money is. And, um, you know, big key to the success of my business is that our, my service area was in a place where people made a lot of money. And um, ideally, you, you find an area where people have lots of expendable you know, income, but they live in houses with with properties that aren't extremely large. So regardless of the, if you think about it, regardless of the property size, most people are going to have similar amounts of expendable income. So you'll find that small property owners will be more apt to redo their landscaping or hire someone to do maintenance because it seems more affordable to them. It's not going to be, you know, this enormous uh, uh, project. But then if you go to the more rural-type areas, in my experience, you're going to find you're going to be more likely to find a homeowner that wants to do it himself. Um, and then the other thing is the travel distances can, can get to be a little bit of a problem. So I think you, you're looking – the ideal community you're looking at is upper-income, uh, expensive big houses with small lots. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And it's amazing how much we can pack into those small lots, and I think that's a selling point. Because I think oh, there's absolutely. a lot of people that they, they they kind of sold out their dream for their other dream. So their first dream was a nice big giant place, right? Mm-hmm. So instead they got a nice big giant house and a little yard in the suburbs. And a lot of people think one day when I retire, I'm going to have a couple grape vines and some stuff. And they just can't get their head around the fact that that little space can turn into what it can turn into. But I think today, even if you don't have the portfolio, if there's enough examples out there and go, your yard could look like this or it could look like this or it could look like this, do you like any of those? You know, Or yeah. are there things about each one that you like? And I think that another, I mean, we haven't really hit on it and we can't go too much deeper because we're almost at an hour now, but um, sales needs to be part of any kind of business and definitely here because you're, you're, you're now transferring a belief of a new idea. Right, because right, that's right. the way I define sales is transfer of belief. So mm-hmm. if I'm going to sell something, I got to believe in it. If I don't believe in it, I'm a, and I can sell it, I'm a con artist. So I got to believe in it. But if I'm transferring a belief, the person's kind of already on board with. I sell Ford cars. I am at a Ford dealership. You're deciding between a Ford and a Chevy, but you believe in a car. That that's that's one thing. Now I'm transferring the concept of your backyard should not be grass. It should be all these wonderful edibles that are going to feed you and your family and, and nurture you. And it's, 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 that should be what we used to call in the industry a lay-down sale. You should be like, uh-huh, yeah, but people are going to be resistant to that. So you need to learn to do simple techniques like, are there any of these that you like or are there aspects about any of these that you like? Because then the person starts doing the design for you, at least the, the base-level design, and they might put something in the wrong place, but you can fix the solar aspect. You just move it around for them and explain why. But you've got to get them engaged. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I I found that most homeowners that I've talked to, um, just to, about permaculture in general, once they sort of start to understand some of the concepts, I I found that they are pretty positive about it. And um, you know, I I really I really think that if I went to a, like most most homeowners are going to have three or four people come out to to do a consult for them if they were doing a big project, I would be willing to bet you that. Somebody going out that's talking permaculture and the other people are, are, you know, doing the traditional stuff, I think they're really going to stand out. And I think most people are going to find it to be um, very interesting and something that um, 
that I, I think that you, you'll find a, a, lot, a lot more people that are going to be positive about it than uh, we might think even now. Um, yeah. Um, you know, like one of the, the honey, sweet honey spots for any type of business like this is maintenance. Um, you know, getting things where it's a, a repeat business. So what do you think is like the most profitable and least profitable type of landscape maintenance? How would that apply to a permaculture specialist? Um, the, uh, that's, that's, that's really interesting because, um, and this is going to probably disappoint lots and lots of people out there, especially permaculture people, <laughs> is that your design work is going to be by far the least profitable. So, so all the, everybody who thinks that they're going to charge $2,000 a day like Jeff Lawton, um, probably not going to happen. And, uh, you know, maybe after 30 years of hard work like Jeff Lawton has done, you can get $2,000 a day. But for most of us, it's probably never going to happen, which is fine. We can all be successful in our own right. But, uh, I think in general, it's difficult to find people willing to pay for ideas and designs. People yeah. are more likely to pay for work. And they'll pay for a design as part of the job. Um, you know, we, we actually used to, uh, charge for the design and then if they went with the work, we'd give them the design for free. Which I hated because it was a sales tactic and it was BS. There, there's enough profit in the job to cover the design, but, uh, uh, but, you know, people like that. So, you know, that was a, that was kind of a salesy, tactic that we did but um so design work i would put that at the bottom um as far as as profitability the next the next rung up would probably be commercial maintenance type work or large property maintenance because the market is so saturated in that market i mean the the pricing is just rock bottom the all the commercial guys are are pretty much bidding price i mean quality is not as much of an issue they're these huge crews of guys making you know seven dollars an hour and um so I would put on the low end, we're talking design work and commercial maintenance. The more profitable stuff is going to be your your installation of a design can be really, really profitable if you did it right and if the job is run efficiently. The only downside to this type of work is that you can only do it once, so you're constantly chasing that next client. And sometimes you, you lose sight of all the marketing dollars that actually go into to getting these clients to begin with. So there can be some hidden costs there that you're not even thinking about. But the most profitable thing that we had was was small property maintenance, believe it or not. That was, the, I mean, it was the dirtiest, you know, the least prestigious type of work that, you know, most people would be embarrassed to say that that's what they do. Uh, but that's what we made the most money on. And, the, you know, these small properties, it just meant that all our potential clients were so close together and we built up these heavy, heavy roots and, you know the proper the prices seem reasonable, but uh, we were making tons of money doing it. Hmm. So you know we so, kind of talked about. Oh, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just I was just going to say you could you could probably on if you're doing like a permaculture type maintenance. You know, I mean, I think that if you're doing if you're if you're an existing landscape company, you're still probably going to do some traditional stuff. I mean, you got to pay the bills, but it's going to be kind of a gradual transition so if you let's say you do a couple big permaculture installs and then you start doing these people are going to hire you to do the maintenance i guarantee it because they're not going to know how to maintain it and then they're also they also can't call anybody else to maintain it because you're the only one in town that knows how to maintain a permaculture you know uh, pro, uh project i mean you're the you're the one that knows when to chop and drop you're the one that knows you know what these plants are and, and how to prune them and how to and how to uh take care of them, what, what you're supposed to weed out and what you're not supposed to weed out. Um, and I think that, 
you could develop a pretty cool system for actually doing a, a sort of a maintenance schedule on a, on a, on a permaculture project. And you're coming in, you know, like I said, doing the chop and dropping, doing some weeding, um, you know, doing some mulching. I mean, there's all sorts of cool stuff that, that I think could be done in that realm. And the, and the great thing is, is you have the captive audience because they can't go anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, we, we're talking about the HOAs, and we kind of beat up on them a little bit, but let's be honest, there's a lot of money there. Yeah, and absolutely. it doesn't make sense, if we're not going to be poverty conscious, to say, gee, there's a bunch of money there. But because it's a pain in the ass on some levels, I'm going to completely and totally ignore it. And most of the upper middle class neighborhoods of today do have HOAs in them. I think it's because Americans have lost their flipping minds and gone stupid and said, gee, 19 layers of government isn't enough. Let's add a 20th, and let's put some blue-haired old lady in charge of our lives. That, But they've insisted on doing it. So do you think there's some things you can do, some things you would stay away from? Do you focus on the backyard? Do you maybe try to sell the whole community? Because if you can get the whole community on board with doing the common areas, then you've really got something because you've got a great maintenance contract. How how would you advise approaching that? Um, I think that you would probably run into some issues trying to do the common areas. Uh, I, I really think you'd have to hit the individuals first. And if you got enough clients, they're really jumping on board. And then a lot of times, sometimes the uh, the clients are actually on the HOA board, and then they start pushing it. I think that's where you'd probably get your most traction. But there's there's tons of things I think you can do, even in the most um, you know difficult of HOA situations. For example, uh, herb spirals you can do that all day long. I mean, they they look great. You can do. I mean, you I, I you can do that in a townhouse setting very easily, right in the front yard if you wanted to. They got a little tiny square. Do an orb spiral right there. I mean, that, that would that would work great. Clients would love it. I mean, to be able to just come right out your front door and, and grab some some cut herbs when they need them, I think would be a fantastic idea. Um, you, you obviously would do something really nice. You know, use some really thick uh, sack stone. You know, that's relatively flat, so you can build up the spiral nice. Um, you could do uh, mobile meadows in some backyards. Maybe you you'd probably have to put them. You, you probably, it would probably work best in a in a, in a for a client that's got a fenced-in yard, you know, because you, you don't want if if, if your long mobile meadow is sort of bleeding into the neighbors, then that you might get a phone call. But uh, you know, you could put put the edge on contour, and uh, you know that would be something you could do. Obviously, your edibles, you know, incorporating your edibles into the landscape. I mean, these these morons on the HOA, they have no idea what these plants look like, and all the all the fruit bearing stuff looks it's beautiful. I mean, you know, it's no reason why you can't use strawberries as a ground cover or, or plant a you know, a fruit-bearing uh, cherry tree where you have a non-fruit-bearing. And then, you know, all the all the berry bushes that, that are available, especially in the temperate climates, or, you know, there's just tons and tons of stuff you can do. The big, the big problem would be is you just got to kind of be careful not to have it look too wild, and especially in the front. Uh, in I the guess back. you could put in some, um, some annual substitutions, too. Like, everybody's using margarita, sweet potato, ornamental vines now. Well, mm-hmm. you could use like a purple leafed true sweet potato. It looks really cool, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Or, or you could use like the rainbow Swiss chards. Those are gorgeous. And you know, but you know, there has to be in the maintenance some sort of a harvest time too, as you switch over to winter plantings or whatever. Right, right. I mean, there's uh, yeah, all that stuff could absolutely be done. And all the all the the garden. I don't understand this. Why we why we have this in our head that edibles. Our plants aren't beautiful. I mean, if I, in my opinion, they're more beautiful than the than the uh, traditional stuff that we see in, in HOAs uh, land type landscapes. But uh, 
you know, I also, I really like the idea of replacing mulch in areas with like, with a living mulch, like dust white clover. Um, I actually did this under my, uh, my grapevines and my fruit canes, and it actually looks great. I mean, it only gets to be six or eight inches tall. You know, it saves me the labor of having to remulch and, you know, this nice green clover, clover, you know, it looks so much nicer than the brown mulch. And then, of course, you're attracting the, the pollinators and fixing nitrogen. And, and that's another great idea, incorporating heavy amounts of nitrogen-fixing plants into your design and then, you know, using that chop-and-drop mulch for, you know, as part of your maintenance package. Um, you know, cover crops, there's no reason why we couldn't start, you know, incorporating cover crops if we're going to be establishing a new garden or holding a slope or... Um, Food forest, there's no reason why we can't do food forest on swales. And there's no reason why we can't do swales. I mean, I, I, did you read uh, Guy's Garden by uh, Toby Hemingway? Uh, yes, I have. He actually has a nice um, d- diagram of a swale that you can't even tell it's there, he, where they, they dug the ditch out on contour and then filled it with, um, there's a little bit of gravel at the bottom, and then filled it with straw, and then put a little bit of layer of sand, and then planted it right over so you can't see it. So it doesn't look like a swale. It's it's backfilled in, but yet it's designed to infiltrate as though it were a swale. Another thing you could do in these HOA communities would be installing your plants as communities. I mean, you, you pretty much just see the boring old plant with space and mulch, and then another plant in space and mulch. No reason why we can't start... Uh, installing things as communities, you know, we can use our, our ground cover mixes underneath our trees and shrubs to help with your insect repellent and nitrogen fixation, mulch and nutrient accumulation, all that good stuff that we learn in permaculture. Um, wildflower meadows, there's no reason why we couldn't do some of that stuff if it's kind of positioned in a decorative way so it doesn't look like a bunch of, you know, quote unquote weeds to the average person. Now that would might be something you might have to put in a in the backyard, but you could, you know, certainly put the edge on contour and make that look nice and neat. Uh, wind breaks, there's no reason why we can't be doing that stuff. Uh, small, you know, even small clay line, you know, natural frog ponds would be kind of a unique addition to a suburban setting, especially in a, in a backyard. Uh, all the all the landscapers, you know, they're doing the line ponds, which require uh, tons of maintenance. But if you get if you get the aeration of the pond right, it's not going to be this. Uh, muddy type of uh, mosquito pit that they're going to think of, the HOA is going to think it is. But if it gets enough aeration, the water can be nice and nice and clear for the most part. I mean, not totally clear, but uh, uh, I think acceptable in that situation. And uh, as soon as they say, as soon as they say mosquito, it's it's nine cent for your goldfish to the rescue. Exactly. You know? And you, that way exactly. you don't have any big investment. And then when they die, the yeah. birds eat them, and you add new ones. Exactly. exactly. I mean, it's. <laughs> And, and the mosquitoes grow in tiny, tiny little pools of water. I mean, if you if your if your system is balanced, it's not going to be a mosquito pit. So no. Um, the only thing you you might not be able to do would be some of the zone five stuff. Like if you want to have a zone five wild area, that that you know that could be an issue. But if you kept it really small and kind of out of the way, you you might be able to, to get away with something like that. But like I said, I mean, there's there's just tons and tons of uh, of features that yeah, I think you could put into a design and get away with. Awesome, man. So I, I want to bounce an idea that I had off you for a person trying to stick their toe into this. Maybe it's a terrible idea, and I'd like to know before I go telling people I think it's a good idea, because uh, right now okay. it's just an idea. But if I was a designer right now, and I had a really good handle on design, and I knew how to do design, one of my thoughts would be to sell installation and design and subcontract the labor to a landscaper who may not even know how to do permaculture, but will do whatever he's told by the guy paying the bill. 
terrible idea? It's it's not a terrible idea, Jack. It's uh, there there are some there are some issues with it. Um, if you the design and in like actually going out and selling the jobs and doing the design, it's it's an extremely time consuming process. And um, actually doing the work, I mean, you'd be shocked at how many designers we had just to run. Uh, I think it's five. Probably five, I think we had five landscape crews, and we literally had five designers to just to keep these guys busy. And a, a good chunk of those of the work that these crews were doing wasn't even landscape work. I mean, some of it was like mulching and, and regular type maintenance work. So it, it does require a tremendous amount of effort to actually sell an, you know enough work to make it to make it worthwhile. Um, the, the the issue that you might run into is if if you have a subcontractor for landscape uh, install type work, there you run the risk of you don't have the control over the rely you know over their reliability. They might sure. say, um, well, you know, I'm I'm charging Jack this much, but I I'm making more on my job, so I got to do my job first. I'm gonna, we're going to do a really good job on that one, and we'll get to his whenever we damn well please. You know, um, yeah. so that's that's one of the issues you might run into if it's uh, now if you can find. And there are companies out there, for example, like we, we, we did obviously all our own design, build, and maintenance, but we did sub, subcontract our concrete work. Uh, we did have our, our own install for like, uh, pavers and stuff like that. But our concrete work, we actually had a guy who, a Portuguese guy who had a, he actually had a huge company, but, um, he, he was actually doing, uh, the subcontract work for us for the concrete. And he ended up being, uh, really good. And then we also had a, a, a Mexican guy that, owned his own business, was a fencing guy, but he wasn't good at dealing with the clients because his English wasn't very good. But he ran a great business, and they did a great job. So he was a perfect fit for us because we did all the all the stuff with the clients, and they just showed up and did a great work, and their prices were reasonable. And he wasn't looking to – he wasn't worried about his own jobs because he didn't have his own job. I mean, he was just a, a straight subcontractor. So if you can find really good subcontractors that don't have a bunch of their own stuff that they're going to run away from, that they're going to basically, you know, um, put your job in the back burner for, then you might have something. I guess another way to approach it might be to find the best companies in your areas and approach them on the concept more of a commission-only salesperson with an understanding that the jobs you're going to sell are going to be jobs of this type. Um, yeah. Because I can tell you that I this is a this, this is a what you call a, a crossover point or a, a shift point. And there were a lot of companies out there doing basic like wire installation and things like that in, in buildings and in commercial complexes and all back when I was in the communications industry. And I know good salespeople who walked in and said, data cabling is the future. I'll sell the jobs. All the work goes the same way. There's a little bit of specialized knowledge. I can guide you with that. And did that, blew up these companies and made so much money on commission. They turned around and bought the freaking company they were working for. Wow. There's more than one way to skin a cat. I mean Yeah, yeah. So Yeah, I, I think it I think it's entirely possible, absolutely. You just have to sort of I think watch out for some of those uh uh pitfalls. I think I think if you could if you could uh, at least get a crew going, you know, just at least one crew going, I think that uh once you off. get yeah, one, yeah, I think you'd be better off because once they once they're once they're doing some of the design build, but they can also be doing the maintenance in between. Um, you know, so once you get a few a bunch of projects under your belt, they're done, and then you have maintenance to go with it. 
mean, I think that uh, I think you could be very profitable at that point. That would be that would be my model. Um, the, the other thing is, I think there's so many guy, people out there that want to do design work. Uh, my designers, for example, they would spend hours and hours and hours doing these designs, and we we actually had a um, a subcontractor that would do the CAD work for us. And when I went out and sold a, a design, I mean, I would help lay lay it out and tell her exactly what I wanted, but I wasn't wasting my time doing that because it was far more profitable for me to be able to bid more jobs and sell more. So, I mean, that's that's uh, that, that's kind of the I think some of the reality with the design work is this, it's it's not as much of a money maker as, as people want it to be. But if you can but if you can get a good commission rate, you know, at least I mean, I'm trying to think of our top commission rate. If you could get you know 10% of the job, that would yeah. be bad. You know, that's you, awesome. You could swing that because your 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 thing to the company would be like, hey, you're you're not you're not marketing for this. So yeah. You, yeah. you need to give me a bigger. I mean, this is my marketing. I'm I'm bringing the clients. You're doing I'm nothing. Bringing, this is and this is the magic words to get through to a business owner. This is 100% incremental revenue. Yeah. yeah. As a business owner, you love to hear those two words, incremental revenue. That means that it's it's business you would not have otherwise had, and yeah, that, oh, that that's growth. Well, as a contractor, I would I would have jumped on it. If somebody came to me, a permaculture designer back in the day came to me and said, "Hey, Phil, um, we want I want to, we want to I have these clients and these jobs, and, and I want you guys to do it." And you know, I would say, "Great, yeah, absolutely, we're on board." Um, and uh, you know, you know, we would actually schedule it and treat it just like any other job, but uh, but we would have to get our price. Um, you know, which isn't cheap. So, um, so there has to be enough, uh, enough, uh, you know, fl- fluff in there for everybody to, to get paid. Um, so anyway, but I, I think it's kind of a cool idea, Jack. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, th- this is one of those things like it's new. So people are going to have to figure out their own piece of it. Uh, but I do think it has a, a hell of a future. And I think that it only gets better from here. Cause I, I mean, wouldn't you say the reason that to do this uh, from a from a purely business standpoint, isn't saving the world. That's that's the long term mission, and you got to convert a lot of suburban laws before you make a dent in that. But oh, yeah. from a long term view of a business, isn't it that the demand for locally produced healthy food is on the rise, especially among affluent Americans who can afford it but can't mm-hmm. find a supply? Yep. 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 Well, it's it's funny. I actually had uh, we actually had a few visitors this morning um, from a local college here. My my wife is uh, an adjunct professor at a local college, and anyway, so so they want to come over and see what we're doing here. And you know, we have the have the permaculture system here that's working out pretty good. And and the, the one guy was telling me he was you know he was saying how he's trying to get all this local organic food, and you can't find it around here, and this and that. I mean, it's it, you know these are people that tend to have money, so absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, they would buy it if they could find it, but they can't. So uh, you, your, your, your proposition to them is, well, if it grows in your backyard, you know where it comes from. You know how it's treated. And I think that – I think the other thing that people need to sell in this is the experience for your children. Because everyone's oh, like, well, I want to have a yard for the kids to run and play in. There's <laughs> Most of these communities are full of grass. There's They're not going to run out of places to run and play. And yeah. it's shocking, shocking. And we had some issues with this with the community. We were just doing the forest garden design for up in Montana that they were worried about the same thing. But kids actually like to run and play in treat areas. I, I, yeah. I don't know if you're aware of this, but like kids like to play in the woods. And if yeah. there's a whole bunch of shit in there they can eat, they like it even better. 
And then yeah. you don't have to tell him, Johnny, eat your greens, because Johnny's running through the woods eating the good stuff because he thinks it's a treat. And, they, and they don't I, like to they don't like to know. play in the Bermuda grass lawn with the fire ants. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I've got places right now. I just ordered a gallon of Antifuego because I was out there the other night walking the geese, and I stood in an area, and next thing I had about a thousand of them. And I, fortunately, I just gotten back home, so I was wearing jeans. Um, and I was able, basically I took my pants off in the middle of a field and walked back home in my boxers uh, rather than suffer their wrath. But yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great point too. You don't see a lot of fire ant mounds in highly shaded, fully treed areas. They like open spaces. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Plus, you know, I mean, having that connection to your food and, and it's just definitely a permaculture garden is, is much closer to nature than anything that, that's out there in, in suburbia these days. So I think that's a that's a that's a that's a big thing. I really think if we if we can get these starting to get installed, that's going to be the biggest marketing is your word of mouth. You know, you, you start doing some, and, and people are just going to rave about it, and they're going to tell everybody about it. So obviously that that can go the other way if you do something wrong. But uh. <laughs> it might be better that we don't use the word permaculture on initial marketing as a new business because that way if we screw something up, it's just Joe screwed it up instead. Because you, you really don't. I mean, thinking about it as a pioneer, right? You don't want yeah. to taint the image of the word. Just because you got it wrong doesn't mean it's wrong. And right. we all screw some stuff up. So the, the mid-tier suburbanite, that that word doesn't buy anything with anyway, is better off to hear edible landscaping, natural landscaping, et cetera, than permaculture. And you know what I always learn, too, in the sales industry, never use a word with a customer if it's not necessary, if you're going to have to define it. So if I yeah, have to use the word, and I'm going to have to define it, I will. But if I can use anything else that will convey the same thing and get the job done, I want to do that because it doesn't make you sound smart. It makes you sound like you're full of shit if you use too many words that you have to explain. It also makes the client feel like you're talking over them, like they're beneath you. So yeah. if I can say backyard edible landscape, that's better than permaculture garden in the backyard unless you know what the word means. Right. And if your client does and you start talking about all this stuff, they're going to go, is that permaculture? And then you're like, yeah, it is, right? But until you get there, let it be whatever they want, because people buy what they want, not what you tell them to. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. But uh, it's funny. I, I made me think of, uh, I don't know if you remember Jeff Lawton talking about that community of uh, thorny, was it thorny locust trees they planted? And yeah. They like, like hate them now. Yeah. But but I think I, Bill was the one that actually did that. He's like public yeah. enemy number one. They want to kill him. <laughs> yeah, of course it was. It was. It was. It was just a, a desert nothingness before. So I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> well, if they put in the non-thorny ones that were not supposed to, re, you know, re reproduce, only sucker. And um, in, in in the words of uh, Jurassic Park, nature found yeah, a way. Yeah. Yeah, uh, found which a way. should be a, a a message to all the people out there screwing with GMOs. Uh, but if we go there, we're going to go down a whole different path, and we're well over an hour now. So I'd like to kind of at the end here, do you have any final thoughts for people that are thinking about, you know, making this a business from the standpoint of design installation? Like, you know, where, where do you just where do you just start if you're going, especially the landscaper that that already does this, but says, man, I want to I want to shift this. Well, I would suggest uh, taking a PDC. Uh, I think that that's a, that's a good place to start. And uh, I, I really think that the opportunities out there 
are absolutely immense, Jack. And I think that if you're if you're a permaculture person and you're like, I what am I supposed to do now? I just want to do these designs. Think about how many fewer designs you have to sign up if you're actually doing the work as well. And there's something very satisfying to actually getting your hands dirty and doing the work and uh, building something versus just building papers that are pretty. Um, and uh, I think that for those uh, people that are landscape companies and uh, get out there and learn about permaculture because I, I really think it's a future. Awesome, awesome stuff. Well, hey, man, I appreciate you being with us today, Phil. Thanks, Jack. I really enjoyed it. Hey, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Phil Williams helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Show you.